Let's just come and pray together. Father, every day of our lives, we're aware of all that you've given us and all that we owe you, but never is that truer, never is that more clear to us than as we celebrate this, this Easter and remember everything Jesus did, all that he gave. Father, we give you our praise for that death that paid the price of our sin, for that resurrection that enables us to live in your victory. For all that he has done, all that you have given, we give you our praise and we bring this offering to you now as an expression of our love and devotion. In Jesus' name, amen. Just to say that tonight we're going to be focusing really gathered together around the Lord's table. We're going to try and arrange things seating-wise in a different way so it can be a more intimate, if you like, gathering together and really focusing on the Lord's table on that price that, that Jesus has paid for us. But I'm just going to ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you've got a Bible with you. Um, there should be ones there in the pew for everybody. Just to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1, and I'm going to begin reading from verse 18. So it's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and reading from verse 18. And here Paul says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Just going to watch a, a brief film called The Promise of Easter, and then I'm just going to share God's word with you. Father, we want to thank you for the wonder of your gift to us in Christ. We want to thank you for your power demonstrated in Jesus Christ, in his resurrection from the dead. And we pray that we'll hear of that power, we'll understand it, but even more, that by faith we'll experience it today. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it might not interest many of you, but as a collector of useless information... It did interest me that the last time April Fool's Day and Easter Sunday were in the same day was in 1956. I was two. Now, lots of people enjoy April's Fool Day. Lots of people do, usually those who are the instigators of pranks rather than those on the receiving end of some of them. But, you know, while there are some cruel tricks, there are also some pretty funny and harmless ones as well, like on the 
Scottish Evening News, I think it was in the late 1970s, 15 years before Jurassic Park, there was a story on the news about how various species of dinosaurs had been located wandering about some isolated valley somewhere. And there was actually film of these creatures, and at the time it all seemed to be incredibly well done and convincing. Now I say that because I was watching this with the minister of Salcoats Baptist Church, and we swallowed it, hook, line, and sinker. I spent all night wondering, dreaming about how we could ever protect ourselves against these creatures if they managed to break out of that valley. It was only the next day when I looked at the paper and saw the date then that I realised it all fell together. Then, as recently as last year, Dundee University launched a new degree, an MSc in Penguin Studies. And a number of people applied for this online. And most, but not all of them, caught on when they saw that one of the course requirements was taking an adult penguin home to live with you for a year, <laughs> and that one of the listed course modules was penguinese, the language of penguins. And then, of course, a few years ago, uh, Burger King, they announced that they were going to launch a new burger called the Left-Handed Whopper. And that along with the left-handed whopper, you got left-handed condiments, salt and tomato sauce, etc., etc. Thousands of people the next day went along and tried to get one. I know that because I actually did get one the next day. Okay. But what about Easter Sunday? Well, without doubt, there are those who would say that it's entirely fitting that April Fool's Day and Easter Sunday should fall on the same day. That nothing could be more apt than that foolishness and faith be brought together in this way. Well, I want us to face up to that challenge this morning as we begin now by asking the question, are Christians fools? Are we fools because we believe in a mighty creator God? Are we fools for believing in Christ as God's Son, God come among us in human form? Are we fools for trusting in his death on the cross as the sacrifice for our sin? Are we fools for believing in the resurrection that three days after his death he rose from the grave? Are we fools? Well, let me just be clear right from the outset. I don't believe Christians are fools. Rather, I believe Christianity is an entirely reasonable faith. It's a faith based on fact, based on truth, and it is truth that can be tested. Of course, there is a need for faith. Because some will argue against what Christians see as truth. And a God who is spirit, an unseen God, to believe in a God like this always demands faith. But as the Christian author Max Lucado, as he puts it, he says, our belief is not, our belief in God is not blind faith. Belief is having a firm conviction something is true, not hoping it is true. And let me just say and make it clear at this point that 
that I don't see faith as an unfortunate hurdle that's part of Christianity and that we've just got to deal with. Rather, I see faith as an essential part of Christianity. For you see, if Christianity had been designed by God in such a way as to make faith unnecessary, if he'd stepped into our world and acted in such a way as to make his existence and Christian truth undeniable, with faith then being unnecessary, well then there would be no real love relationship between man and God. There'd be no loving obedience. You see, we would be compelled to acknowledge God rather than drawn into a loving relationship with him. Faith is an absolute essential if we are to know God personally, if we are to have a true and loving relationship with him. But let me here just try and clarify what I mean by faith by by quoting from an article I read this week. It says there are three words that go together in this context. First, we must believe, then we trust, and finally, we act in faith. While believing forms a basis and trust is a security, faith is an action and a commitment. Faith is never blind. And while it is a leap into the unknown, it is never a leap into the dark. It is at least a leap into hope and truth as we see it. Faith is based on research, evidence, and experience. Those of us who are Christians have looked at our evidence and made our choice, not just to believe that Jesus is God's Son, but to believe in Him as our Savior, put our trust in Him, and take His message of the kingdom, and take then our leap of faith into risky, unknown places with great security. There we find truth and hope. Now here some would undoubtedly, I think, want to protest, but how can you believe, how can you have faith in a creator God to start in the life of all the hard scientific evidence, particularly evolutionary science, all that evidence that there is no God and that there is no need for God? But I want to say I certainly don't have the scientific knowledge, even if it was the right time to explore this kind of issue in any kind of depth which I don't believe it is, but let me simply say that there is no doubt that there is a degree of evolution within species. No doubt about that. Yet, the big claim that evolution makes for evolution from species to species and that life on this earth just happened, as the American National Association of Biology Teachers puts it, as an unsupervised, impersonable, unpredictable and natural process of temporal descent. I don't go with that. Yet, you know, in terms of how life began, evolution, actually, when you look at it, has no clear idea and certainly has no final proof. Looking at this during the week, I found that there are at least, at the moment, seven possible theories about how life began, including an electric spark, and I quote, scientists don't know how this might work. Also that life came from deep sea vents or from the results of extreme cold. And even 
that it came from outer space. That smacks of desperation. But again, I quote, even if this concept were true, the question of how life began on earth would then only change to how it began elsewhere in space. Now you see, put simply, when you get right down to the basics, I find to believe that a world of such variety and complexity as ours, I find to believe that this came about as the result of a conscious action by a mighty creator God, a much more logical and believable theory of life's beginning than a chance act, unsupervised, impersonal, and unpredictable. Both theories require faith. But for me, evolution as an explanation of the beginning of life in total requires a far bigger leap. And when people tell me that evolution is a proven factual explanation for the origin of life as it is on our world, well, I don't believe it, and I don't think you should. I found this in a book by Philip Johnson, who's a former law professor at the University of California, and this is what he says. He says, the Hard Facts Wall, the Hard Facts Wall Museum exhibit in San Francisco goes so far as to supply imaginary common ancestors for animal groups, thus leading unwary visitors to think that these ancestors have actually been found. (laughs) Visitors to the museum at first take the exhibit at face value. After I explain it to them, they are astonished that a reputable university would commit such a deception. But the museum curators are not consciously dishonoured. They are just true believers who are trying too hard to help the public to get to what they see as the right answer. But what though about the event that we're remembering, that we're celebrating today? What about the resurrection of Jesus? This teaching that stands at the very heart of Christian faith. That we believe in Christ and that in Christ that God became a man. That Jesus was both God and man. That on this earth he lived a perfect sinless life. And on the cross he gave that life to pay for our sin. He gave that life to pay for the sin that separates us from a perfect, holy, and sinless God. That's what we believe. And then that three days later, he rose from the dead, by this demonstrating his victory over sin, over death, over all the powers of evil, and a victory that we can share in with him as we put our faith in him. Because then in him, We know the dominating power of sin broken in our lives. The powers of evil no longer from that moment on hold sway over us. And the fear of death is broken by the hope that's ours in Christ. That's what we believe as Christians. But are we fools for believing this? I mean, it is an almost unbelievable thing to think that someone could come back from the dead. So is this just a a first century fairy tale 
a story made up by people then that we choose to believe in as a crutch to try and help us to cope with the harsh realities of life in this world and with our fear of death. Well, there have been many critics of the resurrection and they've been around for many centuries who've offered up various alternative theories as to what happened on that first Easter. So let's just look at the evidence for a few minutes for and against before we decide whether Christians are fools for believing in the resurrection. So first then we have the physical evidence. That is the physical evidence that the Jesus who Christians claim rose from the dead was actually dead in the first place. For there have been various theories put around mainly in the last 200 years ago, 200 years or so, that claim that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Rather, instead, that he, he fainted from exhaustion or that via the sponge that was held to his lips on the cross, that he was given some kind of drug that made it appear that he died, only to be revived later by the cool, damp air of the tomb and then smuggled away by co-conspirators. So what evidence do we have then in answer to that? Well, first, there's the evidence of the torture Jesus suffered before the cross. And here's an interesting piece of information that I came across recently. You know how in Luke 22, it tells us there that Jesus was praying in the garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion. And then in verse 44, it says that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Well, that's the, the kind of details that, that Christ, critics of Christianity love to use against our faith, isn't it? They love to write off the gospel, to write off Chris, uh, Christian faith because of things like this, the stuff of fairy tales. Well, listen to this, taken from Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. That's part of a, an interview with Alexander Metherell, a highly qualified American scientist and a doctor. And he says this is a well-known medical condition called hematidrosis. It's not very common, but it's associated with a high degree of psychological distress. What happens is that severe anxiety causes the release of chemicals that break down the capillaries in the sweat glands. As a result, there's a, a small amount of bleeding into these glands, and the sweat then comes tinged with blood. We're not talking about a lot of blood. It's just a very, very small amount. But doesn't that fit in with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? That knowing what he was to go through physically and also emotionally, abused by his enemies, deserted even by his own disciples, but above all, spiritually, separated from his eternal fellowship with the Father as he took upon himself our sin. Is there any doubt that Jesus would have suffered the most extreme anxiety imaginable, making him a prime candidate for this kind of condition? And then a knock-on effect of this is that it would make his, his skin very fragile and very sensitive when the next day he was flogged by the Romans. And you know how brutal a Roman flogging was? They used a whip made of braided leather with pieces of metal and sharp bone 
woven into it. The area from the shoulders to the back of the legs was whipped. And Eusebius, a Roman eyewitness of a similar event, he describes the injuries that would be suffered. He says veins were laid bare and the very muscles, sinews and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. And many died from this beating before crucifixion. But the very least that they would experience would be shock because of pain and blood loss. And so Jesus collapsed on the way to his crucifixion. And then his expression of thirst on the cross. These, we're told, are all indicators of this. So even before being crucified, Jesus was in a critical condition. And then there's what he suffered in the process of crucifixion and on the cross. The nails that would be driven through his feet and through his wrist. And by the way, that's no contradiction. In Greek, the wrist is considered part of the hand. But you see, these are two of the most sensitive areas of the body. You know the pain that you feel when you hit your funny bone? I always wonder why they call it that, by the way. But you know that pain? Well, if you multiply that, And imagine that going on for hour after hours. Then you're touching the edges of what Jesus suffered. And then when the cross was lifted, Jesus' shoulders would be dislocated. His body position would lead to an ongoing struggle to breathe. And then either exhaustion would make it impossible for him to pull himself up any longer. And so he wouldn't be able to breathe. And then the person crucified would die of a lack of oxygen. Or they would die of heart failure. You see, carbon dioxide would build up in the blood, leading to an irregular heartbeat and ultimately to heart failure. And this, I would say to you, is what it would seem happened to Jesus. Happened to Jesus That it was this irregular heartbeat that let him know that he was close to the point of death and then leading to his final words. Lord Into your hands I commit my spirit. So Jesus died then of a heart attack, or perhaps more fittingly we might say, he died of a broken heart. An interesting fact though is that this this process would lead to fluid gathering around the heart. And modern medical science tells us that if this is pierced, this fluid, that this leads to the appearance of a clear water-like fluid followed by a significant flow of blood. Well, what does John tell us in John 19.34? That one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And I see, I used to find that detail hard to understand and even unnecessary. Why include it? But you see, only an eyewitness of an event would include a detail like this. So here then, a simple Jewish peasant watching this is given to us precisely the symptoms modern medical science would expect of a heart attack caused by a trauma like crucifixion. Indeed, so agonizing was crucifixion and that pain associated with it that they actually had to invent a new word to describe it that hadn't been used before. Excruciating. Excruciating. That says it all. 
So Jesus died on the cross then. He didn't just swoon, he died. And it's interesting that this theory that Jesus swooned on the cross is actually a relatively modern attack on the resurrection. It was never even suggested by the ancient enemies of Christianity, of those who were around at the time. They attacked Christ and they attacked his resurrection in a number of different ways, but they never, ever claimed that he swooned on the cross. No, they didn't. Because these men who had witnessed crucifixion, they knew that crucified men did not faint, that they died. But it's not just the physical evidence, there's also the historical evidence. For no one who was around at the time, certainly not the Christians, but neither the Jews nor the Romans, no one who was around at the time ever denied that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that a massive stone was rolled against the mouth of his tomb. Later on, the the Jews and the Romans did try to come up with alternative suggestions in order to try to explain the empty tomb and discredit Christianity. Explanations such as the guards fell asleep or the Christians bribed the guards in order to steal Jesus' body away. But no one has ever managed to explain why the first Christians would do this. Why they would want to believe basically a lie. And why and how they would be able to keep up this pretense when increasingly they were persecuted and even put to to death for their faith in Christ and in that resurrection. One suggestion that has been made is that the resurrection appearance of Jesus weren't actually real physical appearances. Rather, that they were hallucinations. That what they were, they were a matter of people seeing things that they desperately wanted to see. Now, that sounds kind of promising, except for the fact that every element found in a hallucination is missing. Here's what Gary Collins, a psychologist of international reputation, here's what he says. He says, hallucinations are individual occurrences. By their very nature, only one person can see a given hallucination at a time. They certainly aren't something that can be seen by a group of people. Neither is it possible that one person could somehow induce an hallucination in somebody else. Since a hallucination exists only in the personal subjective sense, it is impossible that others could witness that. And then there's the the state of mind of the disciples and and the type of people that they were. You see people that they're usually on a high before hallucinating. But the Bible tells us in a totally non-complementary way that prior to the resurrection, that far from being on a high, the disciples were anxious, fearful, and depressed. Plus the type of person who's usually receptive to something like hallucinations. These are people who've got a fertile mind. These are people who are full of imagination. And there's not much evidence of that kind of person among the first disciples. No, they were a pretty hard-headed bunch like Peter. Or even they were out-and-out skeptics like James or even Thomas. Are we fools then? 
to have faith in God, to have faith in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, faith in his resurrection. Are we false to the contrary? I would argue and I would say with confidence that Christianity has a solid factual basis. And certainly no one has ever came up with a credible alternative explanation to the central truth of Christian faith. It does take faith to believe. But that step of faith is a step that's based on solid ground. So we are no fools today as we declare that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. But if Christians, those who put their faith in Christ, aren't fools, then who are the fools? In our world today, who are the fools? Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 tells us who he saw as the fools in his day. Verse 22 and on, he says, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now you see, what Paul was actually setting out here were the two basic groups of mankind who reject Christ. For the Jews were and are a practical, down-to-earth kind of people, perhaps because of their experience of their God. The God of the Old Testament, a God who gets involved in the world, a God who steps in and who acts, a God who gets into relationship with his people, a God who's there in the midst, in the nitty-gritty of life. So the Jews then, typically, they want action. They want proof. They want cast iron, irrefutable proof before they believe. But while God does do mighty works that point to him to unveil truths of his character, truths of who he actually is, and the Jews were certainly recipients of many of these. But God doesn't put on some kind of miraculous sideshow in order to compel people to acknowledge him for who he is. Because as we said earlier, that wouldn't be grace and it wouldn't lead to faith. It wouldn't lead to love. It wouldn't lead on to loving acts of obedience. But I wonder, have you ever met people like this? People who say they won't believe, they can't believe. Until and unless God proves it to them. They want a sign for themselves. They want that miracle. But I want to say today, and I don't know if you're in that position, but I want to say, be clear. God has provided more than enough proof to make belief a more than reasonable option. But to know him, you have got to step out in faith. Because God wants a relationship with you. A relationship that's based on love and grace and faith. And the only way into that relationship is by you taking that step. And the other representative group of people that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians are the, the Greeks, Gentiles, same thing. And you see, the Greeks, 
They were famous for their love of debate and of philosophical discussion. They were known for their many different schools of thought and their many different gods. The debate and the speculation never seemed to end for the Greeks. And so they never seemed to come to a decision. They never seemed to come to a final conclusion. Isn't that so true? Of so many in our society today, the society we're part of. We live at a time when people are just so full of themselves. They, they think that we're so clever. And so many people, lots of people today, they're ready to debate and they're ready to discuss the spiritual. They'll talk about it all day long. But the idea that there is only one God who calls you to trust him, to love him, to be obedient to him, they don't like that. You see, it's too simple. It's too humbling. It's too final. So they'll just go on debating and discussing. I say, talking about God, even believing there is a God, that doesn't cut it. You've got to look at the evidence and put your faith in. You've got to commit yourself to the one true God who became a man in Jesus Christ, who died on that cross for your sin and who three days later rose from the dead. You've got to put your faith in him. Otherwise, you are a fool in God's eyes. You are a fool. We're going to finish now by looking finally at the way of the wise. The way of the wise. And the way of the wise, as Paul outlines it in these verses in 1 Corinthians 1, the way of the wise is to give in to God. The way of the wise is to realize that man's power, man's intellect, will never get us to God, will never lead us into that life which is life at its ultimate as it's meant to be. That can only be found God's way. And the way God is designed to bring human power and intellect right down onto its knees in the humility, in the sacrificial love, in the divine simplicity of the cross. For we're not called to, to work our way to salvation. And we're not called to think our way to salvation. No, we are called to put our trust, our faith in God's way of salvation. In Christ, in his cross, in that empty tomb. As Rick Warren once said, you were made by God and for God. And until you understand that, life will never make sense. Now, someone who seems to have grasped this was the French gendarme Arnaud Beltram, who a week or so ago died as he exchanged his life for those who'd been taken hostage in a, a terrorist act. Now, reading during the, the week about this man, I discovered that he was brought up in a nominal Catholic family. But in the words of his priest, he experienced a genuine conversion in 2008. 
He married his wife, Mariel, whose faith is also described as profound in a civil ceremony in 2016. And at the time of his death, they were preparing together for a Christian church ceremony. And these are the comments of this priest on his actions. He says he knew the promise of religious marriage that he made to Mariel, who is already civilly his spouse and whom he loved tenderly. I am a witness to that. So did he have the right to take such a risk? It seems to me that only his faith can explain the folly of the sacrifice which today has become the admiration of all. He knew, as Jesus said to us, that no man has greater love than to lay down his life for his friends. He knew that if his life were beginning to belong to Marielle, that it also belonged to God, to France, to his brethren in danger of death. And he concludes, I think that only a Christian faith motivated by love could ask of him such a superhuman sacrifice. So was Arnaud Bertram a fool? Do you know, I don't think there are any, many, even in this most cynical of societies, that would say that about him. They admire him. They're amazed at what he did. But they cannot understand why he did it. But you see, he was no fool. Rather moved by the love of Christ, enabled by the power of the risen Christ. He did that, which is beyond this world's understanding. And in doing it, he glorified God. He pleased God. And I believe he is now with God. He was no fool. And you will be no fool. If today you put your faith in that Christ of the cross, that Christ of the resurrection, you will be no fool. Rather, that will be the wisest thing that you will ever do. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the glory of Christian faith. Lord, we want to thank you that this is the faith, the rock on which we stand. Jesus Christ, your Son, God become man. Glorious love expressed at the cross. Wondrous power shown in the resurrection. This is our God. May we today have the faith and the wisdom to take hold of the life that you offer us through Christ. We pray this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.